And that is good news. And when I think when we figure that out and we get a revelation of that, we're going to follow him with all of our hearts. And so I'm with you on this journey. But through the Gospels, we see Jesus saying those words to his disciples. And he says, come follow me. And he has different encounters with these particular people. And um, you see him doing it one-on-one. You see him uh, talk to crowds and this invitation of to follow him. And what that means, I love that he doesn't really give a lot of explanation to his, especially to his 12, of here's what it means, but he just says, come follow me. And I wonder if he just had a little twinkle in his eye, a little smile, said, come follow me. This is getting ready to completely alter your life. And you're getting ready to walk on an adventure that you never thought, but you will love it. And it will be not just for this life, but it will have eternal implications to it. And it will be, there will be some tough times. It's not always going to be blessed and blessed. It will be blessed in a different way, but you're going to go through some things with me. But it will change your life, and the retirement benefits are fantastic. But we hear his invitation to them, and we hear his invitation to us. In Luke 9.38, Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, and he's talking to us, if you want to be my follower... Lay aside your selfish ambition, take up your cross, and follow me. And so, what did he invite them to? What is he inviting us to? When Jesus said, follow me, they knew what he was asking. That phrase was very common among rabbis and students of the day when they would say, follow me, because it was, it was intended to be an all-in decision. They knew what he was asking. That's why you see two, the, the disciples that were fishing, dropping their nets and following. You see Matthew leave his tax collector's booth and follow Jesus. They understood that he was saying, I want you to be all in on this, not just partially. And through the Gospels, you see people make the all-in commitment, and then you see people that can't. Jesus calls them out, and we see them as fans. This is the excuses of why they can't follow him. So you see both. You see in the Gospels, fans and followers. Last week, we talked about the tie between being his follower and being completely devoted in commitment, that profound dedication in spite of circumstances. Because the disciples that, that lived on, I mean, minus Judas, we know his story, and uh, John, who lived... Um, who was on the island of Patmos, it was a prison island, and he lived until he died kind of of natural causes. But the other guys died martyred deaths for their faith. And so what, what kind of commitment, what kind of profound dedication did it take that they would say, we're, we're in to the point of we're willing to die for you, and, and they were arrested and, and they were mistreated. And so last week we talked about, in in the sense of profound dedication, evaluating our relationship with Christ. And this is very good to do. Allowing the Lord to challenge. And when we pray again in the place of relationship, saying, Lord, you have permission to put your hand on areas of my life that maybe I've been a fan and not a follower. And I encourage you to do that in your prayer time and your relationship with him. But this week, I think, is, is probably so important as I would define it as the glue to what it means to being a follower and not a fan. I think this holds everything else together, and I think that you can see this from the beginning 
In Genesis 1 up until the end, when we read about in Revelation of the end of days, you see the common theme, the common thread, the glue that holds everything together. And I would say this, it's love and intimacy. Love drives devotion and commitment. If you show me someone in love and I'll show you the person that's willing to do anything. We've seen people like that, you know, they're a little bit sappy. And you, they have that goofy grin on their face. People that are in love, that love drives devotion. Because just willpower, at some point, that runs out. But love will drive. I'm talking about true love and, 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 and true intimacy will drive commitment. And that's the difference between followers understand love and intimacy. Fans are religious. And what do I mean by that? And I've talked about this before in an idea of religion versus relationship, but I want to just touch in on it just for a moment. The biggest difference, what are the biggest differences between religion and relationship? Religion focuses on the outward, relationship on the inward. Jesus, when he looked at the Pharisees and he called them out for these things, but let's not think that when we read Matthew chapter 23 and we see Jesus saying, woe to you, scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, that he's talking to them and it was the first century and it really doesn't have anything to do with us. How quickly can we be very religious? We can And so Jesus touches in on this, and the religious focus on the outward, the performance, looking good in front of people, desiring to be in front of people. That's what drives you is because if I can convince you that I'm holy, maybe I am holy instead of what's really on the inside. Because a relationship, if religion focuses on outward, religion focuses on outward relationship deals with true inward transformation. Because it doesn't take very long when you get to talking to someone or know their life if they're just trying to put on a mask, if they're trying to pull it off, as opposed to a real sense of transformation on the heart. And I'm not, again, I'm not talking about that they've perfected something or they've got it all figured out. That's not what I'm talking I'm, You can tell when they're in a relationship and they're in love. Religion wants to look spiritual, be seen of men, performance-driven, a lot of knowledge, appearing holy and spiritual. That's why Jesus said they love to, these guys love to, they love to be called teacher. They love to have these deep, religion deals with deep insight. You know, I, I heard this, this one pastor talking about, he said, you know, this guy told him, he said, you know, your, your sermons just aren't deep enough. And he said, do you have the gospel figured completely out? As soon as you get that all figured out, then we'll talk about depth. And religion likes to kind of go in these ideas that are very deep and, and, and almost like it's just too much for any common person to completely understand. So the religious people they, of the day, they love to be called teacher and they love to, be, to have all this revelation and it was always coming out of them and people were hanging on their words and it was like, man, that's so deep, I don't even understand it, but how cool are they? 
And again, and, he, and Jesus said, inside you're filled with greed, you're filled with dead men's bones, there's no life in you at all. Religion says, you need me and you need my intellect in your life. You need my revelation. Common folk, you guys just don't quite understand it. Relationship that Jesus says, anyone who would come to me, I invite them into that place of relationship with me. It's interesting because in Acts, I love that it says this about Peter and John. It says that they were, they were teaching in the temple. And it says that the people around, and among the, that group was religious people, that says they were amazed at them because they saw them that they were ordinary people. One translation says ordinary people with no formal education. I'm not saying you shouldn't be educated or you shouldn't train, you shouldn't study. That's not what I'm saying. But when we just get into head knowledge and we're trying to impress people, that's what I'm talking about instead of having an inward transformation. But it, they recognize them as these guys that, and it says they, 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 they taught with boldness, they, they taught with passion, and they said, they weren't, they're not formally educated. These guys didn't go through all the schools, and, and it's wow. But here's what it says about them. But they recognize as they had been with Jesus. And that's what, it, that, that's what I'm talking about. What, what a testimony. That when we come in contact with somebody, you have a conversation that maybe they don't even have the words to put together what, what it is about you, but there's something that you've been with Jesus. You've been walking in relationship with Jesus that somehow your life produces that kind of fruit as, man, what is it about you? Well, it's not about my training or my superior knowledge, but it's, I'm just walking with Jesus. But devotion, I believe, and intimacy go hand in hand. I don't think you can separate them. We are committed to that which we truly love. Jesus said it this, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Because when you get to know someone, you, you, you understand where, where they, what they value, what they place value on. That's where their heart is, where you put your treasure, there your heart follows. So this place of intimacy as it relates to discipleship and being a follower of Jesus are interconnected. Look at the disciples. They're a ragtag group of guys. They have a lot of issues. They struggled with unbelief. You watch them in the Gospels, and, and man, they just... they. They were up, they were down, there was good days, there were bad days. A lot of times, they did not understand what Jesus was trying to convey. In fact, in his most, the most dark hour of his life, the crucifixion, he's telling them, you know, the Son of Man's going to go suffer, and he keeps telling them this, and they just don't want to hear that. They don't even, they're just, this doesn't work within what we have planned for you. Um, this doesn't work for us. But what I love about it is they are us. Because we deal with the same thing. We deal with unbelief. We struggle. We have issues. So that passage this morning, Matthew 11, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Have you ever been there? Struggles, trials. We're not exempt from trials and those things just because we're a follower of Jesus. But he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. But those guys are us. When we laugh at them, which I do sometimes, I'm usually convicted about 30 seconds later saying, mm, I remember something I did that was very similar to that. 
But we look at them, we see ourselves, they blew it. They have even abandoned Jesus. And he, told, he, he said that. He said, they're going to strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. You know, they doubted his resurrection after he was risen from the dead. He told them he was going to be raised, raised from the dead. They doubted that. But they ended up changing the world. That's the good news, is they ended up changing the world. They were going to follow him no matter what. They were all in most of the time. Their hearts were all in, though. Even when they didn't understand it all, they were all in. Even when Jesus would confront them, they were all in. Why I believe it, it comes down to this is intimacy. They knew that he loved them. With a love that goes beyond human comprehension, they received even his correction and his rebuke because they saw it out of a place of love. They looked through the lens of love. Not again, not that they didn't make mistakes or have struggles and trial, but they saw him through the lens of relationship and intimacy. This guy loves us. And that's why they changed the world. How could they go through martyrdom? How could they go through torture? Is because they understood the place of love. And that's why I believe intimacy with God, receiving his love, is the most important revelation that we must get to be his followers. And I believe that Christianity boils down to this truth is that we were created to have an intimate relationship with God. To know his love, to love him, and to share that love with others. Christianity is a love story. We have to figure that out. We have to get that. We have to be reminded of that because it's so easy for us to go back into our routine and forget that. And then we try to just follow the rules and we need to be moral people and we need to be nice to each other. And, but if we remove the idea of this, that, that Christianity is a love story, life gets very difficult. Let me encourage most of, most of everyone, when they hear that word intimacy, they don't get very weirded out. Let me, this is mainly for guys. Don't get weirded out when you hear the word intimacy there. Intimacy is, is it's a deep and profound connection on all levels. True intimacy isn't just physical, especially as it comes when we talk about marriage. But it's an interconnection of, on all levels. The word for this kind of love and intimacy in the Old Testament is, is the word no. It's the Hebrew word yada. Don't be impressed with that. I'm just telling you because I'm going to point you into a direction that's going to hopefully be encouraging to you. The Hebrew word yada is to know, and that's not just head knowledge. You know, you can know math or science, most of us. <laughs> I struggle in those areas. I hate that. The word for know is the word, it's intimate, but it's the word yada. It's the word that we see at the very beginning. It says, Adam knew Eve, and they bore a son. Yes, there was physical intimacy involved, but it... It, it transcends more than just physical intimacy. It's to know uh, and to be known on all levels. It indicates transparency and vulnerability, loving and connecting on a very deep level. Here's the encouraging part. When David writes this, uh, the psalm, Psalm 139. It's a really well-used, well-known psalm where David is proclaiming how God knows people. And David 
understood intimacy in the Old Testament, which was quite a revelation back then. We have Jesus, and so it's through the Holy Spirit we understand it. But David uses the word yada, that word know, about six times to describe. In Psalm 139, listen to this. He writes, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. In other words, he says, O Lord, you have examined my heart and you intimately connect and know everything about me. You know, yada, you're intimately connected when I sit or when I stand. You know, you're intimately connected with my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know, you're intimately acquainted with everything that I do. You know, intimately acquainted with what I'm going to say even before I say it. And so he's saying, you know, you know, you know, you are intimately acquainted with my life. You know how I feel. You know when I hurt. He even says, you know when I'm far away. When we, like Isaiah says, like sheep have gone astray and we do our own thing, God even knows us there and he is trying to restore and reconnect relationship with us. That's how God wants to be intimately acquainted with you and me. And so looking at that psalm, do you see the importance of us getting this revelation, the revelation of God's love? Everything else has to flow out of that place. That's why it's the glue. That's why it's, I think, the chief revelation um, as followers of Jesus, that you wake up every day and say, Jesus, thank you that you love me, that you've invited me in a relationship because everything else flows out of this. Are we to follow commandments? Yes, but out of a place of love. Are we called to live a holy life? Yes, Paul writes about it, and he writes very specifically, and, 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 and I mean, Paul was very real in, in saying, you know, flee these things, don't do these things. Live a godly life, watch how you live, guard your integrity. But we have to understand, he's saying it out of a place of saying, you need to understand love, and then you'll understand that I'm following commandments because I love him. I flee those things because I love him. And it's not just fleeing him and then fleeing love and just trying to muscle it out and trying to be a little more moral. It's saying, I, I, I love him and that's why I do it. When we understand his love, it's a joy to follow his commandments. I've always said this, rules make sense when we understand love. Maybe they don't make, you know, head sense, but even when we deal with our kids, when they understand that we love them, the rules become easier to follow. Because there's nothing worse to try to follow rules without love. That's where you get legalism. That's where you get harshness. And so you have love versus judgment and correction. We need both. Paul says in Romans, behold the kindness and severity of God. He is a righteous judge, but he's a loving savior. And we have to get both. We have to understand both. We have to be reminded of both. That whole idea of God loves me, we hear that. And maybe we know it to a certain degree, but do we believe, do we believe it? Do we live it? Are we convinced of it? 
And I think the more we get it, the more it will revolutionize the way we live. I think that once we get it, we won't be driven by other stuff and sins when we get this relationship revelation. I think you know, we're always going to still struggle because we're, our, our flesh is at war with the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 7, there's a constant struggle. But we don't have to live under it when we get the idea of revelation, the uh, uh, relationship revelation. And so my prayer for, for you and myself and my family is that, that, that we, we get this revelation of an intimacy with God and that it radically changes the way we view him and we view his love for us. I believe it can change everything. And I believe it has the, it has the potential to move us from fans to followers. But we need to know that the enemy will battle us. He battles every one of us. And he knows, I believe, he interferes in this place of relationship and intimacy all the time. He does not want you to get that revelation from God. He doesn't want you to understand that God loves you. Because I believe when we get it, it transforms the way we think and the way we live. I think it will drive our devotion. We pray, not because we're supposed to, and that's what good little Christian people are supposed to do, but we pray because we're consumed by his love and we talk to him and we have a relationship with him. How many of you ladies would like for your husband to sit down and say, well, let's talk because that's what I'm supposed to do right now? Good luck, gentlemen. You just lost the conversation. But when they say, I want to hear her, your heart, because I love you. It's far different. But we pray out of, and because we're consumed by his love. We read his word, not because that, that's what we're supposed to do, and that's in the Christian manual, 101. Read your Bible. But we're consumed by his love. We have the revelation of love and relationship, and then we're devoted to him and say, I want to read your word because I want to get to know you better. I want to know you. I want to know more about your heart. Then we're devoted to his church because we're consumed by love for him. We, we give of our resources because we're consumed by his love, not that that's what I'm supposed to do. Here comes that dreaded offering bag again. I don't want people to think I'm unspiritual, so I'm going to throw something in there, and oh boy, I, you know, I don't get this. But we just say, you know what? I'm so consumed by his love that he owns it all anyway, and I just give because I love him. We forgive other people who have hurt us because we love him and we understand his love for us. It will transform the way we live when it's hard to forgive someone. I believe that when we get that whole idea of relationship and intimacy, it helps us to somewhat get that whole thing figured out, what James talks about of faith and works. You know, that whole theological discussion, is it faith and works? And James says it's both. You've got to have works with your faith. Ephesians 2 said we're saved by, by grace and faith. We don't work our way to salvation. Salvation's a gift from God through the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and he took our sins upon himself, and we accept that in faith, and we get saved. But then, right after Paul says that, by grace you're saved through faith, he says that, but you've been created from the foundations of the earth to do good works. And so out of an outflow of understanding who we are in Christ, he's created us for good works. 
Not works to salvation, because, but works that we love him. When we get the faith and works thing figured out, when we love him. And now I do works because I'm consumed by his love. The attack of the enemy on the love of God began in the garden when he says, did God really say? And he calls God's goodness and God's relationship because, you know, it said before sin, God would come into the garden and he would have relationship with Adam and Eve. And we see his intentions there at the very beginning. He would come to them daily and talk with them and have relationship with them. And so what is the enemy trying to interfere with? The enemy just doesn't just say, well, I just want to get, get, bring sin in, and if they can grab hold of sin, that will do this and that. He was wanting to interfere with intimacy and relationship. He was trying to interfere with love. And that's why he calls God's goodness under question. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? In other words, I, don't, I think God's holding out on you. God doesn't really love you. Because if God really loves you, then he would let you eat of every tree. And, you know, and, and, and there's this, and he's calling all this into question. That's what he says to us every day. Did God really say that? Does God really love you? Look what you did. Look what you did 10 years ago. Look what you did yesterday. Do you think God really loves you? So he interferes with intimacy. I'm going to give you some scriptures from the Word of God about God's love. I'm not going to read all of them. I'm going to just touch in on them. But the reason why I want to give them to you is I encourage you to write these down. Meditate on them. I'm challenging myself to do this. But I encourage you to write these down. Pray through them. Meditate on them. Memorize them. Again, I'm not talking about just getting to read them just for the sake of head knowledge. I'm saying do this as you write them down and you read through them and you meditate. I'm going to read them together with family members or if you're by yourself in your quiet time, read these through. Ask the Lord, say, Jesus, in this place of relationship and intimacy with you, what are you speaking to me about your love? But study them and see what he's telling you about his love for you. And if you begin to do it, I have a warning for you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to begin to make you more of a follower than a fan. I can tell you that. But we're just going to go through these very quickly. 1 John 4, 19. I'll read a couple of these because they're short. But this basically says we love him because he first loved us. In this place of relationship and, and intimacy, you know that God is the initiator. He initiated love for us. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 9 through 10 is the next one. It says, God showed how much. Here, here's God with works. He showed how much he loved us by sending his son, his one and only son to the world that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. In other words, if you want to know how much God loves you, look at the cross. That's, he showed his love for us. Next one, 1 John 3, 1. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. And in the relationship aspect of God, he is given, we're given these kind of pictures of God. One, he's called our bridegroom. Again, guys, don't freak out about that. It's a positional thing, that he's the bridegroom of the church, that he loves us like a bride, or like a groom loves his bride. Another thing that we're called over and over is the children of God. 
that we're called his children, that he loves us as his children. Next one's Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. You'll be very familiar with this, but Paul, Paul being consumed with love, he, was, he loved the, Philipp, the Ephesians church when he's writing this, and, and, and he wanted them to get it. And to the point where you, you even see him, he says, when I think of this, I fall to my knees and I ask God. And he's saying, I'm begging God. I'm, I'm hoping and I'm praying and I'm hoping and praying and praying and hoping that you'll understand God's love for you. He said that you would have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. Let me experience the love of Christ though it's too great to fully understand. He said it's so huge. Because we, we get a concept of love, and we love our children, we love our spouse, we love our family members, we love our friends, and we can experience love at a certain level. But Paul is saying even that is flawed. There is a perfection of God's love that if you can get it, it will change everything about your life. He said that you would understand And then he even says, but you're not going to fully understand it. But here's the fruit of it. He said, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. You want God's power? You want to be able to overcome sin? And that's that's what I said before. Out of the place of love and relationship, we can overcome. 1 John 4, 18. He says, there's no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Romans 8, 31 through 39. You'll be very familiar. He said, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? Verse 35, can anything separate us from God's love? Does it mean that, we know, that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or danger or threatened with death? And so Paul is saying that don't equate bad things happening on the earth to you that God has stopped loving you. But I think in some circles in the faith and Christianity, we have sold people the wrong idea of God's love. So if you follow Christ, it's only blessings and happiness and, and we equate that with worldly happiness and worldly possessions and worldly things and that is not what God is talking about. Because then we have a problem when godly people endure hard things. Then we scramble and say, well, your faith is not enough or you got some problem here and maybe they maybe are dealing with problems. But I tell you, we are very dangerous if we, under, if we, if we equate the two and, and, we, and we start saying that, that following Christ means worldly happiness. Of You get more stuff and you don't have to ever go through anything. And, and Paul says right here, can ever, anything ever separate you from Christ's love? Does it mean that no, he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hunger or destitute or in danger or threatened? As the scripture says, for our sake, we have been killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. Anybody want to sign up for that? This was the first century church. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us.
And so what he says there, and I'm not going to read the rest, you understand, he says nothing can separate us from God's love. But we at times base his love on our current circumstances. He loves me, he loves me not. Things are good, he loves me. Things are bad, he doesn't love me. But his love transcends our circumstances. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to give good gifts to his children. He does. He does give good gifts. He gives provision at times. He gives healing at times. But we can't just say that if he loves me, then nothing bad will ever happen or I'm not going to face any troubles or trials or struggles. Then Hebrews 12 is the next one. This is the tie between God's discipline and his love. He said, have you forgotten that you're my children? My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't give up when he corrects you, for the Lord disciplines those he loves. So he ties us together with, he says, if I'm disciplining you, if I bring correction in your life and I pinpoint something that you're off base and you're wrong, don't look at that as that I've stopped loving you. Look at that as intense love, that I love you deeply, that I want to bring correction. And it gives us an opportunity to repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I was wrong. God, help me. But he says, you endure just discipline as a child and understand that, that my love is, my discipline is my love for you. And then John 15. Again, I won't read this whole thing, but Jesus uses this word where we hear abide or what he's saying is remain, those who remain in me. And I and them, they will produce fruit. Anyone who does not remain in me is like a branch that's, that, that withers. But remain in me and let my words remain in you. Remain in my love. Remain, remain. He's, he's saying, I want you to dwell in the place of my love for you. In verse 10 of that passage, he said, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. There again, there's the tie. You, you're not just following commandments just because you're trying to be nice and better. You're doing it because you love me. You remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with joy and your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. And Jesus is saying, remain in my love. Stay in my love. Dwell in my love. Go there daily. That's why he says this over and over in that passage. Remain, remain, remain in my love. Stay there. You're going to have to get up tomorrow and you're going to have to dwell in the love of God again because there's going to be temptations, there's going to be circumstances to get you out of that place. You need to stay and remain in his love. So I encourage you. There's lots more. These are just some very foundational ones. Write them down, study them, read them. But why did the disciples change the world? Why were they so devoted to Jesus? And again, I believe it was because of the revelation of his love for them. How will we change our world? It's not going to be because of our knowledge. It's not going to be that we can argue or debate people into it. It's not going to be our, our superior revelation. It is going to be that we have been transformed by the love of God. And our lives reveal his love in and through us. It's not going to be how spiritual we look or how well we perform. See, fans have a fond and admiration love. 
Fans are admirers. Isn't it quickly how, how quickly we shift even in, in the sports analogies where your team is doing well and you're just like, yes, we're on the bandwagon, we're headed to the playoffs, and then it's like, oh, who cares? They just they wasted that game, and it's just like, who cares anymore? Aren't we funny? Am I the only one that does that? Come on, you people are Vikings fans. You guys do that every year. <laughs> Sorry. I'll pay for that one later. That's okay. That field goal in 98, right? Just remember that. Purple, I am purple. I'm a Viking today. And here's how much of a Viking. I won't have purple on next week. I want to close with this passage from John. Um, I want to look at, uh, this was a passage that I was meditating on this, this, this past week and I was very touched by it because I saw a lot of myself in this passage. But this is when Peter's restored from, I believe, what he was—he was restored from a, to be, from a fan to becoming a follower. And so I'm going to go there in just a second in the, in the, in the passage. We don't have to go there just yet, but I want to give you a little setup of the story. Most of you are familiar with this story. Before Jesus has said what he's, what's going to happen, I mean, he's, he's talked about that he's, the Son of Man's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be crucified. And, uh, and on the third day, he's going to be raised from the dead. I mean, you have Peter at one point grabbing Jesus. I can almost see him, like, you know, grabbing him by the arm because Jesus said, you know, that, that's right, right after Jesus said, Peter, you are a rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter's feeling good about himself. And then Jesus immediately follows that up by saying the Son of Man must suffer. And Jesus walks him over and says, you know, you can almost see him debating Jesus. Uh, Lord, as the rock, um, you called me that. And uh, I'd like to just say that uh, you won't have to suffer because uh, we're going to pray and believe that you won't have to suffer. And that doesn't work. You won't have to go. And he just looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You have the thoughts and intentions of a man instead of God because the reason why I came was to suffer and to give my life up. And so you have Jesus doing this. Then you have, uh, this is all rolling through John 13, 14, 15. All of this, you know, even that love chapter that we just read is right before Jesus' crucifixion. He's having this time with his disciples. Then he has the famous you know, exchange with the disciples where he says that he is going to get arrested. And he said, and you guys are going to turn away and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to flee and go, go uh, you know, a hundred different directions and you're going to leave me. And we have Peter, who was loud and proud, was the first one to speak, says, Jesus, oh, no, 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 no. Not me. Peter even says, the others might. You know those guys love Peter. They probably will, not this guy. I'm in. Jesus, I've been your follower from, I mean, this this is three years. I mean, I've been with you. And Jesus was saying, I'm going to go through things that are going to not really make a lot of sense. And you guys, you guys, it's going to, it's going to be proven because that fan thing in you is going to come really going to come to the surface. Peter says, not me. Even if I have to die with you. And, and, and Jesus looks at Peter directly and says, you will deny me three times. No, 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 no. You, you have it all wrong. But then we, what, what do we see happen? Jesus is arrested. 
People come up to him, aren't you with Jesus? No, I have no idea who you're talking about. Jesus who? And this is just shortly after he vows to Jesus, I'll die with you. Second person, you've got, you, you, you are with him. I recognize you. No, I emphatically deny I even know him. Third person, your accent, you were with those Galileans. I know that you're with him. And this says this in one of the Gospels. This says that he cursed that he didn't know him. I mean, he, he's, he's cussing and, and, and saying, you, I, I don't know this guy. And then it says the, roast, uh, the roaster. <laughs> the roaster went off and the, the meal was done. And, and then, he, then he realized what he had done. And they all sat down for <laughs> roasted chicken, whatever they eat. Aren't you glad? He's glad that I'm not perfect. It, it would be... This is why angels are not in charge, because Jesus is up there laughing at me right now. Did you hear what he just said? Roaster. That's rooster crowed together in Tennessee. We combine words. It's awesome. <laughs> the rooster crows, and one gospel says this, that Jesus made eye contact with Peter, and I just imagine what that was like the grief that came over Peter and just reminded of the conversation. You're going to deny me. You're going to be seen as a fan, Peter, I promise you. No, I'm, 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 Lord, I'm your follower. And then it says he went out and wept bitterly. I think that would be all of our response to that situation. Is it was just, we've been called out. We've been exposed for who we are. But that's not the end of Peter's calling. John 21, 15 through 19, Jesus has gone to the cross. He died. He's risen from the dead. He appears to his followers. And then he's out on the beach. He's cooking them breakfast. Peter swims out to him, gets to him first, and they have this exchange. And this, if you can understand the revelation of God's love for us, because you would think that Jesus said, you know, Peter, you're done. Thanks for thinking that you were my follower. I'm going to pick somebody else now. You're disqualified. Be on your way. Peter comes up to the beach and they have this exchange. So let's read that. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to, said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed, your, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. See, because after this, up to this point, Peter was following, and I think a lot of the, all the disciples were, Peter was following because they, 
They wanted to be on the winning team. They were with Jesus as long as he was doing miracles. They had been a part of those miracles. You know, they got to distribute the food when Jesus multiplied food and they fed a multitude of people. They got to see a lot of this and they were, they saw him doing it and they said, we're on your team. We're following you as long as you do miracles and that you're the one in charge and you're teaching about authority and, and we're seen with you. And when he's rebuking the religious, they're, you know, they're standing off to the side just kind of with a, with a little grin on their face going, that's, that's our guy. We're on his team. But then when he went against all of their thoughts and their processes and he went to the cross and he blew up their lives, it revealed that they were fans indeed. Because a fan likes the benefits but not the cross. When Peter was put to the test, he was found that he had been more of a fan of Jesus. What's interesting in this exchange here is Jesus is using two different types of the words for love. Do you love me? And I think in light of where we've been in this series, this exchange is very interesting. Because the first time he says this, he says, Peter, do you love me? And what he says there is he's saying, Peter, do you, in the Greek, he says, do you agape me? That means self-sacrificial love. That's the love that Jesus is talking about. We're talking about the, that, that, that deep level of intimate connection is, is agape. It's self-sacrificial. It's laying your life down for someone. John 15, when he's saying, remain in my love, that's the love he's talking about. But in the Greek, there's a couple of different words for love. And Peter responds, Jesus says, do you self-sacrificially love me? And Peter says this, Lord, you know that I phileo love you. In other words, it's, it's a fond admiration. Jesus says, do you self-sacrificially love me? And Peter says, I admire you. And he's caught because he's, what do you say? I mean, Jesus, yes, I'm, I'm your follower. I'm, 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 I'm ready now. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm with you now. No, I, I, I admire you. And Jesus says the second time, Peter, do you self-sacrificially love me? Jesus, I, I, I admire you. I'm fondly affectionate of you. I mean, Jesus, it's obvious of what I just did to you. You even told me that I was going to deny you, and I told you, and I vowed I wouldn't. We all know what we're dealing with here, Jesus. I admire you, and I admire what you've done. I admire your miracles, and I admire that you're cool. But I don't self-sacrificially love you. And then Jesus, the third time, calls him out, and he says, Peter, do you admire me? Lord, yeah, you know all things. That's been my kind of love with you. You could, you could even change that to say this when he said, Peter, are you my follower? Because I called you to follow me. And Peter says, Jesus, I'm your fan. Okay, we got that. Peter, do you really, are you really my follower? Jesus we all know because of what just happened, I'm your fan. Then the third time, Jesus says, Peter, are you my fan? Lord, you know everything, and that's exactly what I've been. But then he doesn't leave it there. 
And we see his love for Peter. Each time, even when he's saying, do you admire me? Are you my fan? Feed my sheep. There's still a calling on your life, Peter. You're not disqualified just because you blew it and you, you did the most unconscionable thing ever is you denied Jesus with your life and you lied about him. You cursed that you didn't know him. But th- Peter, this doesn't disqualify. I still invite you because I love you. You need to understand, Peter, I agape you. I self-sacrificially love you. I just demonstrated my love for you on the cross. Peter, that was for you. And it's for all of us. When we deny him with our words or we deny him with our lives. And he looks at us and he says, are you you my follower? And we have to honestly admit with a stinging reality that we've been his fan. We love it when he does stuff for us, when he provides for us and he does some neat things for us. Man, we're all in. And then when things go awry and the relationship gets tested, We're found to be fans, but he still loves us. Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Then he says to him, Peter, you're getting it. Thank you for your honest transparency. This is a part of the relationship, Peter. You're you're admitting that you've been a fan. That's a great place. You're admitting that you've just admired me. Peter, that's awesome. Now you're understanding. You're getting it. You're becoming a follower because of this relationship. He even says to him, Peter, when you were young, you were able to dress yourself and you were able to do whatever you wanted to do. But when you were old, you need to understand people are going to lead you. And they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And it says this in the scripture. It says this was to indicate the kind of death he, he, was, he was going to face for Jesus. And Peter, we know, was, he was crucified upside down. Crucified like Jesus, but here was Peter's words when he was crucified is, I don't want to die like my Lord. I'm not worthy to die like him. Put me upside down. And they nailed him to a cross upside down because he said, I want to be his follower. And so Jesus indicates the type of death that he would say, but then he finishes that phrase, I love this. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. I still love you, Peter. I still have a plan for you. I still have a destiny for you. My love for you could not be any more great than it is right now. I didn't love you less when you denied me. I didn't stop loving you at that moment. I loved you, but I knew it was going to happen. And you need to come to me come to me, come to me every single day. You need to have a relationship with me, but follow me. Because my plan for you is still good. My love for you is still good. And that's his word to us. Allow Jesus, allow him. One of the most honest, wonderful things that we can do in relationship is being honest and vulnerable. Is when he says, look at that air of your life, you've been a fan. And then we go on that defense, that religious defense of self-preservation. You know why I say that? Because that's my biggest sin that I deal with is self-preservation. I want to, man, I don't want to look bad. I don't want to admit that I've got this. I've got it, but man, it's so hard to admit it. And then I go into self-preservation mode of this is why I do that. The Lord is like, well, you still do that. It doesn't matter why you do it. And then I just have to get honest and say, ah, Lord, I do that. That's honesty. And in relationship, we... 
have been fans and allow the Lord in relationship to put his hand on those places in your life and say, it's not for your shame. It's not for you, me to tear you down. It's for me to say, you're my, I want you to be my follower. And to allow him in honesty to put his hand on areas. And if you're here today and you've never decided to follow Jesus, you've never said, Lord, I, I, wanna, I want to live for you. It's a great day for you to do that. It's a great day for you to come to him, surrender your life to him, confess your sins because we're, we've all blown, we've all fallen short of God's glory. We come to the cross and that was the display of his love because he took my sins upon himself and he says, you don't have to endure that. You don't have to endure the punishment for your own sin. You can come to me. We turn from our sin and we follow him. There's a beauty in that and there's a refreshing in that. And if you're here and you've been following him, allow him to touch those areas of your life that says, you've been a fan, you've admired me, but you're not, you've not been my follower. Don't look at that as shame, look at that as his love. I pray that we get a revelation of his love in a new way today to follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your love, for your grace, for your restoration. Lord, I just, I looked at that passage this week and I saw myself even where you were saying, Peter, do you, do you love me? Are you, are you my follower? And, and he had to confess and he had to be honest with himself and say, Lord, you, you know what just happened over the last week. I'm a huge fan. Lord, I confess today before these people, Lord, that there's areas of my life that I've been a fan and I've not been your follower. I pray that, Lord, you would shine your light on those areas, God, and we would see it as love. And that we would hear your voice to us saying, follow me. I still have a plan. I know you've blown it. I know you've denied me by the way you've lived or what you've said. But I still have a plan. You can follow me starting today. You can follow me. So, Lord, I pray that we would follow you with all of our hearts. You would forgive us of our sins. And Lord, that most importantly, we would remember that you created us to love, that you love us, that you love us deeply, for real. Not just in the sense of God loves me because he's supposed to, but Lord, it is a real, intense, genuine, authentic, deep love that you have for every person in this room. Pray that we would never forget that. And God, when we're going through hard times, and maybe there's people here today that are going through the ringer, physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially, relationally, whatever it is, that Lord, I pray that the, that the enemy would not lie to them and say God doesn't love you. But that Lord, they would hear you say, I do love you, and I'm gonna walk with you through this. Just continue to follow me. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. Lord, we love you today. Help us to love you back, to respond to your love. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.